from the picturesque studios of Rodale Institute Radio at WLVR in Bethlehem, PA. It's time for another book-loving episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks. You bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. The holidays are bearing down on us faster than the flash chasing Captain Cold. And so on today's show, I'll name three books I love that make perfect holiday gifts. Plus, Science Fair winner Sonia Micheluk joins us to explain how she measured the DNA of midges to determine the health of local waterways. And of course, your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and insincerely intense inculcations. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you turning pages so quickly they catch on fire right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Lehigh Valley Health Network. In life, we have many kinds of partners, school bus partners, business partners, even gardening partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of life, your health? Lehigh Valley Health Network, your health deserves a partner. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at WLVT and WLVR in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up on the show today, we have a remarkable young woman who at 16 years of age has achieved scientific breakthroughs that we can only dream of. Um, and most of them involve ensuring the cleanliness and health of our nation's streams. The work she's doing is incredibly important, and she's very knowledgeable, and this has very much to do with our gardens and our environment. We're also going to name three more perfect gifts books, gift books, books of gift, gifts of book. We're going to name three more books that are perfect gifts for the holiday season. That's a lot to get done, so we better hop right to your fascinating phone calls at 833-727-9588. All right, Noreen, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, thank you. Thank you, Noreen. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. And where is Noreen doing well? I am from Southampton, New York. Okay, very nice area out there. What can we do you for? Um, I'm in the process of building um, raised garden beds. Mm-hmm. I'm building them for a job. I have a large vegetable garden with 48 beds that are 10 by 5. Okay. The walls of the of the beds are going to be done in a gabion style, which is um it will be stainless steel mesh with gravel, three quarter inch gravel on the inside. Okay, you see a lot of this along. Uh, turnpikes and stuff where there's falling rocks coming down and to divert water that might otherwise freeze. It's kind of like small rocks in prison. Yes. Okay. That's, I've never seen raised beds with that style, but it sounds interesting. Um, I'm just afraid your beds are a little too wide to be true. I know. That is my problem, but I, I actually don't have um, control over that. I'm doing it for somebody who is insisting they're five foot wide. Okay. Any reason why they're insisting that? Because they're going to have to step on the soil and compress it. Yeah, that is the problem. Um, I, it's just, um, you know, it's a job and I do what I'm asked to do. So okay. I've tried. I've tried to get it four foot, but five foot is what it is. Okay. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, and there's tricks you can do laying boards over the sides of the beds to, you know, step on those if you have to reach stuff in the middle. 
or you can just grow something in the middle you don't have to tend to uh, throughout the year. So what I, what, I, what I like to do is we put a trellis sort of not all the way in the middle, mm -hmm. closer to one side. Right. And then on the other side, we'll plant a little further back so that we can harvest it from the back side. The front side, we can harvest the trellis. And then there's a little space in between that we can walk if we need to get things from the back side of the trellis. Right. And again, um, if, if you want to do something really simple, just get a really strong piece of long lumber and lay it down next to the trellis so that you're not walking on the soil. You're walking on the lumber. Oh, I see. So it's, it's, it's um, distributing the weight over a, a wider piece of area. The whole point of raised beds, not the whole point, but the idea is you never have to till them because you never step in them. And right, you don't right. compress the soil. So if you build a little bridge, you can have them almost as wide as you want if you're going to walk on that bridge and not compress the soil. That actually is a, is a pretty good uh, compromise, I would think. Yeah, that's a good idea. So all I have to do, and it, and it can be movable because we change the beds all the time. It could just be a simple plank. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, if you get oh, mad okay. at whoever is, um, is uh, <laughs> telling you to build them, you tell them to walk the plank. <laughs> Great idea. So my issue with, the, with this um, bed is that so the stone wall now, of course, is porous, and the soil and the roots and stuff can go into the inside of the stone. So what I'm trying to do is figure out a membrane in between the soil and the stone on the inside of the bed. I wouldn't do that. Um, when you were describing that, well, first of all, um, how, how wide are these walls going to be? They're going to be four inches wide. Okay. I would say that if you give the stone time to settle and keep adding stone until you can't add stone anymore, that I don't think there's going to be any issue with the odd root growing into there. In fact, there is the strong possibility that your stones, as they get wet and be exposed to soil, and they got roots kind of growing into them, that they're going to help mineralize the soil, almost as if you were spreading rock dust on, on the raised beds. Um, one of the things desperately missing from most of our soils is minerals. And J.I. Rodale and, and many other that followed him would go to quarries where these stones come from, and they would wait till a big bin was empty, and then they would collect the dust at the bottom and they would mix huh. that into their compost piles and spread it on the uh, garden to put those minerals back in the soil. And, and the results were amazing. So I would not do anything to interrupt this, this natural process. So you don't think that the soil will eventually make its way through the stone? Um, I think you might have a little bit of seepage, but... Um, again, you know, I'm very familiar with the kind of structure you're talking about. Here in Pennsylvania, we have a lot of it along the turnpike, especially uh, the Northeast Extension. And there's a road that used to be, actually, it's the uh, Schuylkill Expressway, the Shorekill Crawlway, um, is built at the bottom of essentially a mountain. And water can come pouring down and cause problems, loosen rocks. So they've got these structures down at the bottom, and you never see dirt coming out of them. Huh. And again, to expose your soil to these mineral-rich rocks, 
to me seems like a mitzvah. Okay, that's very interesting. And less work for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we actually were, were considering doing the um, the mesh with both galvanized and, and or aluminum, and we're told that the lime in the rocks would actually react with that type of metal, and it would eventually rust. Um, well, not only that, but the, the aluminum would release um, semi-toxic materials into the earth. Um, I would stick with stainless steel. Yeah. That's about, okay, as, yeah, that's... that's about as inert as you're going to get. But you know what? You can also go to, like, uh, the Pennsylvania PennDOT, the Pennsylvania Department of Highways and stuff, and you can, mm -hmm. you can probably get somebody on the horn who can tell you what, what they make their uh, cages out of. Right. Yeah, I've seen that as I travel through, and I love those. Um, it's a I nice love look. Cages with the stones. I love them. It's a nice look, and you realize that because the rocks are exposed, they're going to heat up during the day and send some of that heat back into the soil at night. Right. Yeah, I think it's right. a. I think it's a great idea. We'd love to see an image when they're done. All right, I'll send them your way. Okay. All right. Yeah, they well, should be finished by spring. Okay, <laughs> as should all of our projects. We'll see how that yeah, works right. out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Noreen, good luck. Okay, thanks for your help. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. Two little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs, little bugs. Little bug, 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 Okay, and that is whereabouts? Is it on the coast? Is it underneath Atlanta? It is underneath Atlanta, about 70 miles underneath Atlanta, and we have 65 degrees today. Oh, rub it in. I had to scrape <laughs> ice off my car today. Oh. <laughs> I, I think that's why you people live down south, just so you can taunt the people who are having well, ice storms. <laughs> it is. <laughs> All right, what can we do for Susan in Georgia? Well, I have this ongoing problem. It's like 30 years ongoing, really. Mm -hmm. My husband gave me this gift, and he planted it. It's a trumpet vine. Oh, good, good, yeah. good. Oh, it's not a gift because it just keeps giving me trumpet babies and they're all over my yard. Yep, that's trumpet vine, all right. But think oh, of the hundreds so think of the hundreds of hummingbirds you've seen over the years. There you go. We do have the hummingbirds, but they seem to love the lantana, too. So, you know, I'd like to get rid of the trumpet vines, Mike. <laughs> Boy, and you say it's been growing for 30 years? At least. Oh, yes. man, that's like the military saying they want an easy answer to Godzilla. <laughs> well, you know, everybody complains about kudzu here. Uh-huh. And I don't have that, but I have the trumpet vines and the wisteria to make up for it. Yeah, and because you're, you have a very 
limited dormant season, they're growing even more rapidly than the ones up here in the Northeast. Yeah, so, they're growing now. Yeah, oh yeah. Have you <laughs> taken, they, they want to move into your home and change the channels on your television set. Oh you know. yeah, I told my son if I left the back door open. It, yeah, they'd uh, come they'd in, they'd, they'd come in, raid the refrigerator. <laughs> okay, so you've taken down the main plant. I did. I I cut that sucker down to the to the very ground. I dug up its roots, but no, it it, it just shot up more. Okay. And wh when did you cut it back or, or cut it down? See, I cut it back the spring, early spring. Okay. So and this is your this is your first year of dealing with um, the underground root system. Yes, it is my first year. Okay. So uh, the first thing I'm going to say is my friend Lee Reich, who is an expert on pruning, he wrote, quote, the pruning book, says that when you've got these suckers, these shoots coming up out of the ground, uh -huh. it is better to snap them off, if you can, than, okay. than to try to pull them up or cut them. Uh, okay. Lee says that the act of cutting releases a hormone down into the roots that urges um, the creation of more of them. But when you snap them, um, that hormone does not get produced and it limits the number of, of new shoots that'll come up. Uh, how many suckers, do you, uh, not counting your husband for buying this thing, how many, right. <laughs> how many suckers do you have in your yard? I'm estimating about 200. Oh, good Lord. Have you considered just mowing them to the ground and putting the place up for sale quickly? You know, you know that crossed my mind. Yeah, it I did. Um, uh, the mowing to the ground, by the way, is an option. Even, okay. though, even though cutting will produce that hormone, um, cutting down the entire forest repeatedly. Do you have a, like a super duper cutter, like one of these DR brush mowers that... Um, is like uh, a lawnmower on steroids. Oh, I do not, but that sounds like heaven. Yes. I just have a plain old lawnmower, and, you know, I just buzz them down, and then they're right back at me. But I'm not cutting them very low either. Right. So do you have, what, what kind of lawnmower? I have a plain old, it came from Walmart, mm -hmm. a Murray lawnmower. That's what I have. So it's a push mower. It is. Yeah, yeah. We would... I have a mower, too. You know, I have the, the Craftsman mower. Should I be cutting with that maybe so I can get the blades down lower? Yes, I would, uh, I would use the riding mower. I would have okay. the blades sharpened first. Okay. And I would go down as low as you can without ruining anything else. And okay. s starting as soon as possible, you're going to do this once every two to three weeks. You want to give the shoots time to come up and achieve some size, uh -huh. but then cut them down. And what you're doing is you're exhausting all the energy from the root system with no reward. If you, uh -huh. if you had fewer of these shoots coming up, there's a technique I learned not long ago where you take tin cans, like cat food cans, dog food cans, soup cans, and oh. nail them into the top of the chute. And that seems to prevent them growing any further. But yeah, in, in your idea. case, in your case, I want to recommend the rope-a-dope. You just keep mowing down the shoots, never giving them a chance to achieve any size at all. And it'll take a year or two. 
but then you'll okay. see them turn into what's more like a blade of grass, and then they'll be gone. Well, that sounds promising. Now I'm getting optimistic. <laughs> oh, yeah, we can overcome anything, but the, the solution to a very tough invasive plant like this is never a direct frontal assault with herbicides or anything. You got to figure out what's going on and take away its energy. That actually absolutely makes sense to me. It sure does. Well, some good ideas, Mike. All right. Good luck, Susan. Thank you so much, and you have a good day. Oh, you too. My pleasure. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and encourage all of you out there to seek out one of my favorite holiday plants, those miniature Christmas trees made of live rosemary. The rosemary alone is worth more than the price of the plant. But don't be running to your local garden center just yet, because we'll be right back to interview a talented teenager out to save the world and take more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute TV and Radio at WLVT and WLVR in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Rodale Institute. Since 1947, the Rodale Institute has been growing the organic movement through research, farmer training, and consumer education. Learn more about local events, workshops, and tours at rodaleinstitute.org. The Rodale Institute, because the future is organic. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at WLVR in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, I will recommend three of my favorite books that also make great holiday gifts for gardeners. Three different ones than last week, Cats and Kittens. But now it's time to welcome my special guest, Sonia Michaluk. Um, a young lady who has won a plethora of science prizes and as part of her reward, um, got to go to Sweden on somebody else's dime and meet the king and queen. Sonia, uh, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you. Um, it's an honor to be here today. Well, it's an honor to have you here. Now, uh, uh, tell us what school you're going to, what grade you're in. Sure. I'm a senior in high school, 12th grade, and I attend Hopewell Valley Central High School in um, Pennington, New Jersey. I have been active in uh, freshwater biology and bioassessment studies for nearly a decade now. Um, Near, nearly a decade. How old are you? 16. But I began doing um, bioassessment, assessing waterway health using invertebrates. Um, I started doing chemical uh, assessment, um, looking at non-point source pollution. It was something I was really passionate about. Um, I absolutely loved going out and splashing in the creek, one of my favorite hobbies. It still is. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's see, when I was about eight years old, um, someone suggested I start teaching. 
And so I started teaching uh, bioassessment training courses. When I was 11 years old, I started becoming um, active in uh, environmental advocacy and public policy. Um, I learned that one of my favorite sites was in danger. They were going to put a gas line right through it. Um, they were looking to uh, basically trench the stream, which means they were going to dig right through it. Um, and I remember learning about that, and I was horrified, honestly, because this was a place that was very special to me and very special to my friends, so I actually attended then my first public meeting. I was absolutely petrified. Um, I got up and spoke. At that time, I had been monitoring the site for um, a couple years, and I presented my data on the site. I talked about sightings of um, sensitive amphibian species. I talked about the chemical health. I compared it to other sites in the area, and I was able to show it was far more pristine. Uh, the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection they actually asked for the data. They took it all into consideration. At the end of this public hearing, someone came up to me and informed me that in a room full of opinions, I was the only one who brought data. That statement has really resonated with me. Did you win? Yes. Yes. So they didn't put the pipeline through? Well, they didn't trench the stream. Now they, they okay. dug under it, which okay. is actually a much more labor-intensive and expensive process. They also, rather than cutting, I think, an 80-foot um, throughway for, um, to park all the machinery mm -hmm. for this um, construction project, they used 55 feet. So all those trees that would have been cut down were not cut down. So you made them modify their plans uh, well, considerably. Not, not solely me, but me and the group that I worked with. That's impressive. Now, let's talk about this most recent award. <clears throat> so I was in Stockholm, Sweden for World Water Week um, in the end of this past August. Um, I was chosen to be the U.S. representative um, to attend World Water Week and to meet um, fellow researcher, researchers, to attend a climate change symposium, and to attend a royal gala with the king queen. Now, you are obviously going to remind our listeners and our viewers of this young woman who's been petitioning the UN for climate change reform. Uh, Greta? Mm -hmm. You haven't met her, have you? Um, unfortunately, when I was in Sweden, that was her time in New York. Oh, so okay. So it's like we switched places. Because you two would be like the superhero team-up of all time. One day I would love to meet her. That would be incredible. And what's the award you got for the experience? Um, so I won the U.S. Junior Water Prize. Um, and what was, uh, you gave a name to your experiment, right? Mm -hmm. So what did you call it? Um, so my experiment was looking at the larval chironomid. Um, chironomidae are a type of macroinvertebrate in family Diptera. And um, in my years of uh, waterway health assessment, I noticed that they were a common denominator across 13 sites that I had been looking at. Okay, now, of, of the scientific name of the creatures um, you were just mentioning, mm -hmm. I was struggling till you got to diphthera, and mm -hmm. that, that means a fly-like yes. creature. <laughs> <laughs> These are um, non-biting midges. They don't bite. Mm -hmm. um, however, they are everywhere. They are a very uh, ubiquitous creature. They are found on every continent. Many studies have been conducted on the chironomid, mm -hmm. um, marveling at um, how uh, diverse they are and how they've evolved to fill a whole variety of ecological niches. There are species that just live in thermal pools that have very unusual pHs. There are species that just live on the backs of sea turtles on small algal films. There are species that just like puddles species that just like to live in sewers. Mm -hmm. um, there are species that just like to live in very frigid climates. They're actually the largest land animal of Antarctica. Okay, <laughs> which means there are no actual land animals in Antarctica. They're gonna offend the chironomid, they colonize the place. Yeah, yeah, sure, come on, I can take them. 
Um, so we're talking about non-biting midges, but yeah. there are also biting midges. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but however, I, I did focus on the non-biting variety. First of all, you studied one specific species, right? Yes, um, actually one specific family. Okay. Um, so the order is Diptera, the family is Chironomidae. Okay. Um, I could not, well, there actually are an estimated over 10,000 species in this family. Now, tell us the life cycle of the family you studied in a typical backyard stream. Okay, so um, the chironomids are whole metabolists, which means that they have four stages. They start out as an egg, larva, pupa, adult. Um, it varies depending on how long they spend on each stage from chironomid to chironomid. Mm -hmm. um, the ones, um, um, the ones I'm studying here are I look at I'm looking at the larval form mm -hmm. because that is the time that they spend in water and natural selection really plays a role here because if an adult chironomid lays her eggs into a body of water mm -hmm. if the water is too acidic or if the water is too turbid then they will not survive to become larva um, the eggs will not hatch and I actually found that really interesting because across the sites I studied the ones that um, I created a statistical sampling plan and I looked at um, uh, land use around these streams. Mm -hmm. I looked at um, historical health data, some of which I collected, some of which have been databases dating many years back. Um, I looked at um, also the land use, the geology, and I tried to get a good variety in all of my sampling sites. And I found that the most healthy and pristine streams were the most dominant species of chironomid was the most sensitive species of chironomid, which I found very interesting. Um, the streams with the highest nutrient pollution were most populated by a type of chironomid called the clinotanipus, um, which is um, red in color. This hemoglobin that is in this chironomid allows it to more readily absorb oxygen from the water. Thus, this chironomid has adapted to live in areas with very low dissolved oxygen, which goes hand in hand with very high nutrient pollution. So in, in some sense, we're talking Darwin here and adaptability and <laughs> evolution. But in another sense, um, and I think why you won the award, is you discovered a way to monitor the health of the waterway almost by just seeing what species of yes. these midges are predominant. Well, there, there's um, a technology called DNA barcoding, and that is when you extract the um, DNA from an organism, and from there you can amplify it and you can sequence it. And it's like a barcode on your groceries. You can scan, and by looking at that and matching it up to databases, you can actually figure out what it is down to species level. Not only that, you can detect mutations and compare it to other, other specimens. I started learning about this technique about three years ago, and um, with my previous knowledge of biology, assessment and how data really can impact public policy and the importance of getting very strong and detailed data of waterways. I saw DNA barcoding as an opportunity to go a step further as most um, uh, to get a organism down to species level manu by manual uh, taxonomic identification by morphology can be very difficult. Uh, typically it's done down to family level for citizen science programs. Um, if you were to send them out for uh, identification even down to genus or species it's far more expensive mm -hmm. and it's very tedious and um, for example the right way to identify a chironomid down to species level from one article i read is you first boil them <laughs> and then you decapitate them uh -huh. then you mount the head on a pin mm -hmm. and then you slowly dissect it because you want to look at its little mandibles mm -hmm. that's i tried that and 
I was told to get out of the kitchen. It sounds um, like me trying to paint the Aurora monster models when I was a kid. You needed like a paintbrush with one thing on it. Because mm -hmm. these are small. These are quite small, although they do range in size greatly. The biggest one I've seen was about an inch. Some of them are only a few millimeters long, though. Depends on the species. Because they can be found in all sorts of bodies of water in all sorts of locations, they are like a common global denominator. Oh, well, first I want to ask, do you think that the number or type of dragonflies and damselflies reflects the health of the water? Um, I think it could. Although damselflies and dragonflies, they tend to gravitate towards stiller bodies of water, in my experience. Mm -hmm. um, and they um, are often predatory. Right, so they, they eat your midges, don't they? Yes, they do. And so that's as why well you as don't each like other. Them. Yeah. Because um, is, which is the hellgramite? The, the hellgramite? Oh, those yeah. are nasty. They'll bite. Yeah. Um, I had. But they're cool. They are very cool. Those are the Dobson fly larva, um, family Corydalidae. Um, I tend to find those in pebbly bottom streams. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually a quite rare occurrence, though, in my sampling sites. It's usually it's a good day when you get a Corydalidae. Um, <laughs> however, they don't take well to, um, you preserve them in isopropanol or ethanol alcohol. Mm -hmm. They don't take well to that. Right. Oh, wow. Uh, what about frogs and toad? The difference between a frog and a toad is that both uh, have their eggs laid in water, both turn into tadpoles, mm -hmm. but when they assume adulthood, toads live on land but come back to the water. Frogs live in the water and yeah. occasionally venture onto the land. So to me, um, the trouble that frogs are in mm -hmm. versus the health of the toads is a, a huge glaring neon sign yes. that there's a lot of pollution in our waterways. In addition, it would be loss of habitat. A lot of amphibians need to breed in vernal pools or ponds, and a lot of these are filled in or displaced due to infrastructure. And so they're just losing their home. They're losing their breeding grounds. There's a pipeline all the way at the back of my property. My property is, one day a couple of years ago in the spring, I saw heavy equipment back there. And I immediately ran out and confronted them, and they were clearing the area over a pipeline. And I said, now? And they said, yeah, what's the problem with doing it now? I said, look, look what you've done to these vernal ponds. Look at these vernal pools. You've got tire tracks all through them. Frogs and toads are breeding mm -hmm. right now. You can come back in six months and do a heck of a lot less environmental damage. And the guy said, well, you can't stop us now. And I went, you know, I'm, I'm old enough now that I'm thinking of just laying down in front of your tractor, okay? Um, so they called their boss, they left for the day, and then I got a call from the pipeline company saying, uh, we can wait. And then they asked me to do some research and tell them literally what would be the best time of the year not to disturb um, these creatures as they're as they're coming out of hibernation, as they're mm -hmm. breeding. And so they, they never came back in the spring. That's and that's really, that's really all it takes yes. um, to preserve diversity, to help mm -hmm. these little creatures. Well, there's other species there um, that, will breed, that are gonna breed in these vernal pools as well in the spring. Low worms, lightning bugs. Salamanders, all kinds of salamanders, from the endangered blue-spotted salamander, um, tiger salamanders, spotted salamanders, marble salamanders. Yeah, these pools are incredibly important to maintaining diversity yes, in the they, landscape. They really are. And a lot of these things that um, are bred in these pools 
um, they go up the food chain. For example, when I studied the Chironomidae, they are a food source for many other organisms. My dragonflies? Yep. <laughs> the dragonflies need these Chironomidae, otherwise they're going to starve. And what, what eats the dragonflies, they need the dragonflies to eat as well. Mm -hmm. And so it really moves up the food chain. Um, it's also very interesting, in my experience, when I sample a stream that is less healthy, um, well, there's something called eutrophication. And um, non-point source pollution or point source pollution can add excess nitrates and phosphates to a body of water, causes an algal bloom, and when this algae dies, it consumes all the dissolved oxygen from the water. Um, That's all of what this... we've been fighting in the Chesapeake Bay, a huge body of yep. water. In addition, though, all of this rotting organic matter, what it does is it creates a very thick muck on the bottom of this body of water. And I've seen this in many ponds. I've even seen this in some canals in um, uh, Long Island, New York. Um, and what happens here, the reason it's so significant is it provides a loss of habitat for so many organisms that heavily rely on living in pebbly bottom places because mm -hmm. they bury into the pebbles. Um, they use them to hide from predators. Make little houses. You know. Yeah, like the caddisfly. <laughs> and if it's just muck, um, they will sink down into said muck and they won't be able to breathe. Right. It suffocates no them. So that's why actually there's like the Clinotanipus and the Chironomus. Um, they are blood, these blood red midges are able to survive in this thick muck, but not many other species of macroinvertebrate are. And that does, that provides less food for the fish, for the turtles, for the frogs, for the salamanders, for the snakes, and that moves off the food chain. What I love about um, bioassessment, looking at the biological aspects of a waterway, is it really captures the cumulative effects of pollutants and habitat alteration over a long period of time. It's, I personally prefer it to chemical testing, although chemical testing is important to correlate it with this biological testing. What I found is uh, the biological health of a stream is a reflection of all other factors thrusted upon it. So any ecological factors, geological factors, chemical factors, um, it's uh, even like weather, it's all going to be a reflection of that. Our guest has been Sonia Michalak. Um, she is a senior at New Jersey's Hopewell Valley Central High School and just an amazing young woman. Uh, uh, Sonia, before we went on the air, you said you wanted to thank a couple of people. Um, yes, I do. I would like to thank um, Hopewell Valley Central High School's uh, Miss Lucci, the um, AP biology teacher. Um, I'd like to thank um, Jim Waltman of the Watershed Institute, Dave Miklos of Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, um, as well as Dr. Christina Fernandez, um, Dr. Bruce Nash, and also um, uh, Dr. Steve Torto of the Watershed Institute, uh, Aaron Stretz of the Watershed Institute, who really uh, sparked a passion for entomology in me, um, and Dr. Patricia Shanley. I feel like I should have an Academy Award, except instead of a naked man, it would have a frog and a toad on top of it to hand mm. you. Um, you are a remarkable young woman. Uh, you've already made your mark on the world, and I think you're going to make that mark bigger as you progress. And the world is so happy that you um, chose this interest, this hobby, this obsession. Um, it's people like you who are going to help us clean this place up. So, thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here today. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and warn everyone that while those little rosemary Christmas trees are a great buy and make great gifts, you must quickly move the pot-bound beauties into containers twice the size to keep them nice and healthy. But don't go run into the garden center for rosemary and potting soil just yet because we'll be right back to discuss three great books that make great gifts and take more of your great phone calls. 
I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Roto Institute Radio and TV in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural, organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and TV, WLVR and WLVT in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll get to the question of the week, whereby we name three really cool books that the gardener on your gift list will love. I ain't giving mine away, but you can get these and give them away, and everybody will be happy that you did. In the meantime, though, more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. John, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Uh, I'm in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. What can we do for John in Mullica Hill? Well, I picked up a uh, new blueberry bush. Um, bought it online uh, one of the retail um, places. They delivered it about a month and a half ago. Right. Um, I guess right as the fall was starting. I, I potted it right up, and now I have it in the sunroom. Okay. Um, all my other blueberry bushes have lost all their leaves and kind of gone to sleep for the winter. Right. And I don't know whether I should put this thing outside or kind of keep it in over the winter. If you keep it inside, it's going to get radically, radically confused. All blueberries have what's called a chilling requirement. Uh, a right. certain number of nights that drop into the 40s. The more traditional blueberries, like the standard high bush, they have a fairly high chilling requirement. There are special uh, varieties of blueberry that are bred to do better down south. So what did you get? Uh, it was a thing was called a pink blueberry, uh, I'm sorry, pink lemonade. And uh, do you know why it's called that? Uh, from uh, kind of what intrigued me to buy it, I think it was one of the first blueberries. I think it actually has bright pink berries. Yeah, I, I've heard it. of this variety. Who'd you get it from? Uh, I think it was Gurney's oh, okay. catalog. Okay, yeah, sure. Gurney's are old friends. Or Gurney is old friends, or are okay. old friends. Anyway, I know them well. Um, so it should not stay indoors one minute longer. Uh, on the okay. ne- On the next kind of medium level day you know don't put it outside if it's 20 um but if if you get a day that's in the 50s and then things are gradually gradually i like that things are gradually going to cool down again um that's the day to put it out leave it out leave it out in the pot for uh like a week of days and nights and i'm sorry if it's flowering or anything like that but um It's not going to disturb things. And get it in the ground as soon as you can after that. Make sure the, the planting hole is amended with a lot of peat moss. And then mulch, okay. it, mulch it with more peat moss on the surface and an inch of compost. Now, you, you say you have other blueberries, right? How many? Um, I think I have two, two, two other ones. Okay. Um, they're in the ground, aren't they? Uh, no, I have them in big uh, whiskey barrel. Oh, okay. Uh, You know, traditionally, I warn people that they can't, in the Northeast, leave plants out in pots over the winter because the roots will freeze above ground. 
Um, but okay. one, one of the ways to cheat around that is to use a humongous container. And the half whiskey barrels are about as big as you get. So right. they're large enough that they provide good insulation. And I just don't want to think. I just don't want to think. I don't want to think. I can't think. I want to think. I don't want people to think that they can put like a, a quart size or a gallon size pot outside with a plant in it and expect that plant to be alive in the spring. But the whiskey barrels are the big exception. Uh, one, okay. of, one of the keys to, and these are very frost hardy plants. The original blueberries were discovered, you know, up in zone three or four. So um, the trick is also to help these plants survive, keep them as close to the middle of the half whiskey barrels as possible. Because as you mm -hmm. can imagine, the outside near the wooden slats, that gets colder than the interior. So okay. keep things close to the interior. Now, are both of your existing plants in, in one whiskey barrel? Uh, no, they're in two separate ones, and I have them um, pushed all the way up against the, the south side of the house. And it's, it's a pretty good windbreak off the field, and okay, it just keeps it a little warmer. Okay, um, well, you know they don't they don't want warmth. Again, um, the the DNA of these plants comes from like New England, central New England. Okay. So I wouldn't worry. I, I, I would not personally even put them up against the south side because they're going to be waking up and falling asleep, waking up and falling asleep. Um, oh, and okay. What are you going was, to? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I was worried about the um, like. There's a. I'm across the street from a, a big field, and there's a lot of like really cold winds that come off and hit them. So I, I put them closer to the house, thinking it stopped the wind. Well, no, um, you're you're right about that. Um, the way to offset that is if we don't get rain or snow, to make sure even over the winter they get well watered, and okay. th that also helps plants survive over winter. What are you going to plant the uh, lemonade in? Uh, I'll probably do another uh, whiskey barrel container because we're doing some um, renovation in the backyard and, and uh, redoing some stuff. I, I don't don't want to put any um, more raised beds in for until probably next middle of next summer. Hey, John, I got three half whiskey barrels out on my patio. I absolutely love them. They're a great height for us gardeners as we get older. And boy, you can fill them with a lot of stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah, so you're, oh, yeah, I love them. Yeah, your plant is pretty winter hardy. I tell you, I've heard about this plant, and I've seen it in catalogs. So if you remember, next summer when it's coloring up and we can see these berries, please send us a picture, and we'll put it up. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's time for the question of the week. Tulips, great gardeners, and definitive designs. Three books that any plant lover will treasure. Books given as holiday gifts should have two things in common. They should be wonderful to look at and helpful to read. Here are three that were remarkably easy for me to choose. Let's begin with Lessons from the Great Gardeners by Matthew Biggs, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2016. The cover price was 30 bucks. I love books that are divided into lots of tidy little sections so that you can pick the book up, read a complete section in 10 minutes, and then get back to whatever you were doing, like imploring your rosemary plants to stay alive. This book contains 40 such sections, each devoted to the biography and wisdom of a gardening pioneer, including Thomas Jefferson. 
who advocated succession planting, the value of curved pathways. Quote, they slow progress, encouraging visitors to slow down and look at what is growing around them, and the value of native plants, which he explained are more suited to the environment, less prone to pests and disease, and generally more robust. We move our bound-in book ribbon, perfect touch for a gift book, to the section on Claude Monet, who, although better known for his impressions of ornamental plants, was rightly proud of the vegetable garden he built to feed his family. My salon was the barn, he wrote. And he's also said to have dug potatoes with Renoir. I'd love to have seen that. Among his valuable advice was to plant densely to prevent weeds, to have something in flower at all times, and to visit flower shows for inspiration. Of course, we have the great Gertrude Jekyll, whom many consider to be the best garden designer of all time. There is no spot of ground, however bare or ugly, she wrote, that cannot be tamed into such a state as may give an impression of beauty and delight. My favorite piece in the book may be the one on Jacques Margerelle, who created both a famous shade of blue and a paradise of a garden in Marrakesh, which he wisely built on an oasis. Although the frogs sometimes drove him to distraction, he wrote, never underestimate the importance of sound in the garden. Frogs croaking, birds singing, the rustle of leaves, the hum of insects, and the trickle of water all add another dimension that soothes the senses. We move on to the tulip, a massive 400-page landmark work by the wonderful Anna Pavord, published by Bloomsbury St. Martin's Press in 1999. Cover price is 40 bucks, with the subtitle, The Story of a Flower That Has Made Men Mad. This one will never leave my personal library highlighted by beautiful period prints, one of which from 1590 shows a yellow tulip with the curious companions of larkspur, a scorpion, and an earwig. Anna reveals how the trade in tulip began in the 15 and 1600s and how a tulip colorfully adorned by a virus became so popular it inspired tulip mania, where single specimens traded hands for the price of a house. Trade in tulips was so frenzied, she explains, it inspired the modern stock market, including the first crash when people realized that maybe a house was a better investment. We follow the first bulbs along the route of the spice trade to Europe and then eventually to America. Anna was a guest on this show two decades ago. Her words of wisdom included the great advice not to plant annual flowers over top of a tulip bed because, quote, watering and feeding of the flowers will rot the bulbs below. Is that why you can't get your tulips to reliably return? Anna's personal answer was to dig her bulbs up after they were done blooming and store them inside for replanting in the fall. Finally, we have the Essential Garden Design Notebook by Rosemary Alexander, published by Timber Press in 2004, cover price $14.95. Another oldie but goodie. This book answers all the questions I generally dodge, like how to make a site survey of your land before you install the garden, designing useful patterns and grids, understanding the space you're going to work with, 
how to have a realistic idea of how much light the space will get. Horizontal elements, vertical elements, and the periodic table of elements. Okay, that last one's not in the book. There are literally hundreds of pages on garden design here, from rough sketches and ideas to the final install. Perplexing ideas are explained, like mood boards and axonometric projections. Thank God Spellcheck knew what that word meant. That makes one of us. All seriousness aside, this book consists of what many of you tell me you want an app for. Think of this book as an app that's on paper because it covers every topic appropriately. One of the most frequent questions we get on the show is how do I accurately measure the amount of sun my space gets? Don't ask me because I don't know. But Rosemary does and tells you exactly how to measure both the amount of summer and winter sun and how to gauge the amount of winds your plants will have to deal with and how to modify it if it's too much. There must be over a thousand brilliant ideas about garden design here, from the overall layout to structures and beyond. I'm exhausted just thinking about it. All right, one thing I forgot to do last week when we reviewed three different books that are perfect for holiday gifts was announce the return of our, quote, book club whereby you send in a postcard and we will draw names from that postcard batch and we'll send out a free book every week beginning around Christmas, New Year's and ongoing till I get some room in my home library. So that postcard, as you're seeing behind me, should be addressed to You Bet Your Garden care of PBS 39 in Bethlehem, PA. They're going to put up more stuff than that behind me, but that will get you there, trust me. And the person who wins the first book will get this total classic, Consider the Leaf by Judy Glatstein, which explains all of these wonderful shade-loving plants uh, that have color without flowering. There's almost no one who doesn't have shade on their property. And this is a great book, highly regarded, a real classic. And that'll be the first one we give out. But we need a new batch of postcards. So send them in. I'm not going to put any time limit on this right now. We'll do that sometime over the next couple of weeks. But get those postcards in cats and kittens, and we will draw the first given away book as soon as we can. Getting back to the question of the week, those sure were three cool books for Yule, now wasn't they? Luckily for you, you can read the info over at your leisure or your leisure, because the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden Question of the Week, and you will always find the latest question of the week where? At the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to turn the temp up to Fahrenheit 451 in here. If I don't get out of the studio, we must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please, please, please 
include your location. You'll find all of our contact information, plus answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of old shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast, Remound, at YouBetYourGarden.org. Remound is a real word, honest. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Television and Radio in association with WLVT, WLVR, and PBS 39 in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created by watching a Marx Brothers movie and Godzilla at the same time. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our engineer is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Tavia Minnick. Our new website wonder is the lovely Nicole Harrell. Our audio editor is Jazzy Jonas Bowen. Our video editor is Judicious Jake Boyer. Our harassed and harried director is Javier Diaz. Zach the Tack Wisniewski, I think he's in the house. I have no idea what house our beloved and beleaguered CEO Tim Fallon, who is not our executive producer, might be in. But wherever it is, he's late for a meeting. I'm your host, literate Mike McGrath, and I'm still getting over my turkey tryptophan hangover. But I'll swear off that third helping of stuffing leftovers tonight, and I'll be ready to see you again next week. Ah, this is the ticket. Oh, it is, is it? Beautiful night. I got my best girl with me. Although, you know what could make it even better? Let me guess. Some mint chocolate chip. Bingo. You always get a little sappy when that sweet tooth kicks in. Partners since the beginning. Throughout life, you have many different partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of life? Your health. Lehigh Valley Health Network. Your health deserves a partner. Learn more at lvhn.org. Who are you going to call? Tick busters. Yes, these evil arachnids are more frightening than Slimer meeting Bill Murray head-on in the hotel hallway. I'm Mike McGrath, and on the next thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden, we'll reveal holiday gifts for gardeners that put ticks on Santa's naughty list. Plus your fabulous phone calls. That's on the next You Bet Your Garden. Uh-huh.